came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves, astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes give different views, are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien. Today is Thursday, the 15th of August, 2019. And we're going to start each episode with a community service announcement and a reminder that, yes, Virginia, global warming is real and it's happening to the planet you're on at this very moment. See what you can do to help. Each fortnight, we speak with a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science or particle physics. And today we're really lucky to be speaking with experimental particle physicist Kate McQueen, who conducts analyses searching for dark matter in particle accelerators. It's an amazing interview, and you can look forward to hearing a beautiful explanation of the standard model and just some of the amazing research Kate is doing using the Bell 2 detectors up on the Super Keck B accelerator up in Japan. Then, as usual, we cross to Adelaide to speak with Dr Ian Astroblog Musgrave to find out what's up, Doc, what's up in the sky for observers and astrophotographers for the next two weeks. And we'll finish up, as usual, with our Astrophys News highlights from this golden age of astronomy, space science and particle physics. So let's zoom down to Melbourne right now and hear Kate tell us about accelerator physics and the dark photon. Hello, Kate. Hi, Brendan. Today we are speaking with experimental particle physicist Kate McQueen, who conducts analyses searching for dark matter at particle accelerators. Kate is currently based at the University of Melbourne and is part of a dark sector physics team who are using the Bell 2 detector, which is attached to the Super Keck B accelerator in Tsukuba in Japan. Yeah, it's great to be here, Brandon. Thanks. Thank you very much. Okay, so before we talk about dark matter and accelerator physics, can you tell us where you grew up, please, Kate? And Tell us how you became interested in science in the first place. Right. Well, um, I'm from Edgewood, New Mexico, which is this really tiny town to the east of Albuquerque, New Mexico, up in the mountains. And that's where I went to high school. And it's also near the area where I went to university for undergrad. But before that, my parents did move around a lot because um, we were a military family. But we ended up settling down there when my mother retired. Yep. And... As a child, I had this huge fascination for space and for astronomy. And 
I sort of loved learning about all of those exotic phrases that you hear in physics, things like black holes and quasars and supernovae and all those stereotypical buzzwords. I mean, you know, as a child, I had no idea what they meant. I just thought that they were like so exotic and so interesting. And I loved to learn about them. I ended up going to a rural high school in New Mexico. Um, and New Mexico is sort of known for being one of the worst out of the U.S. states for public education. So I didn't have a lot of opportunities in school. But those interests in, you know, physics and watching, you know, popular science documentaries still existed. Fantastic. So New Mexico. So maybe tell us a little bit about those school days and your early ambitions. And did those ambitions change, Kate? Right. Well, you know, I did always have a, a particular knack for mathematics. I was very good at maths. And by grade 12, I was actually placed in the AP or advanced placement subjects. So that's like the U.S. equivalent of VCE subjects. Yep. So I was placed in the AP subject for calculus and also for physics. And I was well on my way to becoming valedictorian, but I ended up finding myself really struggling with physics when I actually took it as a subject for the first time. In fact, I actually ended up failing high school physics. But when it came time for university, I felt like I really needed to pick an area to study that was something I wouldn't get bored with, which I sort of had a tendency to do. And I think that, you know, because I was so good at maths, but I struggled with physics, that really seemed to fit the mold. I, I, I found physics to be challenging and I thought I wouldn't get bored with it. So I did end up applying to a bunch of different universities for undergraduate. But I ended up settling on New Mexico Tech because they are affiliated with the National Radio Astronomy Observatory and also with the Very Large Array. And so I ended up, you know, tacking on a maths degree because I felt like I couldn't leave my interests in maths at the door. Um, so halfway through my degree, I tacked on that second degree in mathematics. Fantastic. So astrophysics and maths from New Mexico Tech. Masters in Particle Physics from the University of Melbourne. And you're nearing completion of your PhD. That's a great study trajectory. Can you tell us the highlights of this journey and where you hope to go to next? And I should ask, what's the timeline on your PhD at the moment? <laughs> right. Well, um, so currently I'm in the final year of my PhD, so I'm working on writing my thesis. I'm working on wrapping up some analyses at the moment. Um, so if everything goes well, then I should be finishing within the next year. <laughs> but as far as my next steps, you know, I think even since starting undergrad at university, I always knew that I wanted to go into academia. And I think doing my PhD is really setting me up for a future postdoc position, which is, you know, in academia, the next step after PhD. But the sort of specific area of interest has always been super fluid for me. Like, I've gone through phases of being incredibly interested in active galactic nuclei and accretion disk dynamics to being interested in, like, the Penrose process and Hawking radiation. And then to being interested in, like, pure maths, specifically, you know, topology or differential geometry. And um, so I've always, you know, never, never had a really well-defined direction but I do recall this really terrifying few months that was near the end of my undergraduate degrees in which I kept receiving rejection letter after rejection letter from a bunch of the schools that I applied to. 
And I think this was largely due to my shortcomings in test taking because uh, to get into the uh, U.S. universities for grad school, you have to take the GRE, the graduate requirement examination. And I, I just do really poorly at sitting tests. So I did quite poorly on the GRE. And so I sort of held out hope for some of these international universities that I had applied for. And it ended up working out. I got into a few international unis, but I decided on the University of Melbourne. And when I came here, my research was largely determined by which academics had space to take additional students because I was starting quite late into the school year. So I ended up being really lucky because my supervisor, Dr. Philip Arquijo, had only just begun his position here. And he explained several different project ideas to me. The one that really stood out was searching for dark matter at Particle Accelerator in Japan. And especially because dark matter is really where astrophysics and particle physics intersect. So my my interests in astrophysics were not in vain. And I ended up sticking with that project, and that's what I finished my master's degree in, in doing a search for dark matter at Bell 1, which is the predecessor to my current experiment, Bell 2. And in fact, I ended up getting that degree awarded with distinction, which is a really far way to come from failing high school physics in my uh, small New Mexico hometown. So definitely one of the highlights for me. And I think it's always clear that I've had this underlying interest in physics and in academia. But definitely my lack of rigidity and my willingness to change research areas has helped everything come together in spite of encountering some of these less fortunate or less ideal obstacles along the way. And it sounds like you've got a bit of resilience there, and that might be a a message to any listeners or children of listeners that you don't always have to get brilliant marks in an examination to have a successful career. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned your supervisor for your master's, and we know that early career scientists often have great mentors, as well as their master's and doctoral supervisors. Would you like to tell us a little about some of the people who have supported your career and your research directions? Right. Well, I mean, to not harp on my supervisor too much, but my supervisor, Dr. Filler Kehoe, was my supervisor for both master's and PhD. And he's been absolutely fabulous. He's been really supportive when I've come to him with mental health problems and I've needed to take time off. And he's also the physics coordinator for the Bell 2 experiment, which means he has a lot of sway in the scientific community, which is great, especially given his age. He actually even won the Eureka Prize a few years ago for being an emerging leader in science, which is very exciting. But there's also... Dr. Elisabetta Barbario, and she's another academic here at the University of Melbourne. And she's a very strong female role model, which is not super common to see in particle physics. It is a male-dominated field. And she's very accomplished, and she's really outspoken about her beliefs whenever it comes to inequalities in the current atmosphere in physics, which is a really refreshing thing to see. And then Although I risk sounding a little cliche here, my grandmother has really supported me throughout my career. She's actually the one who helped fund my master's degree. So without her, 
I would not have been able to get as far as I have. Awesome. That's fantastic. We interviewed Elisabetta for 2016, I think, and she told us about that detector she's got down in a mine at store, but we might get onto that a bit later. Let's get into some physics now, some particle physics. Right now, there's a lot of debate about the standard model. Now, are there cracks in it? What's the current state of play? But first, maybe you could outline for our audience, what is the standard model? Right. So typically when people talk about the standard model, they begin by talking about the particles in the standard model. And the standard model is made up of what we as scientists believe to be the most fundamental particles in nature. Each of these fundamental particles can come together to combine a whole zoo of bigger particles called mesons or hadrons. And the standard model is much more than just the particles, but I'll go ahead and start with the particles. Yep. So presumably most people are familiar with the classical model of the atom where we have electrons orbiting a central nucleus and that nucleus is made up of protons and neutrons. And while the electrons are fundamental particles, it actually turns out that the protons and neutrons are not. These are made up of smaller particles called quarks. So the name quark is a bit of a funky name. It was actually chosen by Murray Gell-Mann back in the 60s, and it was based on a line that he pulled from Finnegan's Wake by James Joyce. The line was, three quarks for muster mark. Yep. And yeah, and it, it turns out that the different types of quarks also have really fun little names. They've got the up, the down, the charm, the strange, the top, and the bottom, or sometimes called the beauty quark. And when we consider the electric charge of quarks, it turns out that they actually have one-third and two-thirds times the charge of the electron charges, which allows them to be sort of combined into sets of either two quarks together or three quarks together to make up these bigger particles. And those bigger particles will end up with a full integer charge. So a good example of this is the proton, which is made up of two up quarks and one down quark. And when you combine the quarks in that way, you end up with a charge of positive one, right? Yep. But in addition to the quarks, we've got leptons. So the electron is an example of a lepton. But we've got heavier versions of the electron as well. And so they're called the muon. And then the next heaviest version is the tau. And according to the standard model, these particles are supposed to be identical in every way except for their mass. And that also includes the ways in which these particles interact with other matter. But it actually turns out from experimental evidence that that's not really the case. We, we see these particles behaving differently. Um, and the exact reason and nature of, of these differences isn't really understood. So this is sort of the first hole in the standard model, you could say. Yep. Yeah. And beyond that, we have other types of leptons that are called neutrinos. So these also have different versions or what are called flavors, which correspond to the first leptons I mentioned. So we've got the electron neutrino, the muon neutrino, and the tau neutrino. And in the standard model, these particles are meant to be massless. However, we have really good evidence at this point that that's not actually the case. This was what the Nobel Prize in physics in 2015 was awarded for. It was given to Kajita and McDonald for showing that neutrinos do, in fact, have 
a non-zero mass. So this is, of course, another shortcoming in the standard model. And these are all of the matter particles, but we also have these sort of equal and opposite antimatter particles that correspond to each one of these matter particles I've just listed. So the antimatter particles in the standard model are exactly like the matter particles, but they've got opposite quantum numbers. And a really good example of what a quantum number is, is a thing like an electrical charge, right? Yep. So a really good example of this is the electron and the positron. So the electron is a matter particle, and it's got an electrical charge of negative one. But the positron, or an anti-electron, has an equal and opposite charge of positive one. So since these particles, these antimatter particles, are intended to be identical in every single way except for their charges, we sort of expect them to behave the same way as their matter counterpart. And this includes the decays and the productions that they might undergo. So if we go back all the way to the Big Bang, when particles were first being created, we're sort of expecting matter and antimatter particles to be produced in equal numbers because they're supposed to act the same way. But something has happened along the way, and we've sort of ended up in this matter-dominated universe. Yep. And so that's another big hole in the standard model. Why is there this matter-antimatter asymmetry that we see today? And... I guess the last type of particle that's worth mentioning here are force carriers. So each force carrier is associated with a particular fundamental force. So we've got photons, which are for electromagnetic interactions. We've got gluons, which carry this thing called color charge, which people might have heard of. Yep. And that's used in strong interactions. Strong interactions are the ones that bind the nucleons in the center of a nucleus together. Then we also have the W and Z, and those are used in weak interactions. But hopefully it's clear here that I've only actually mentioned three forces, the electromagnetic, the strong, and the weak, but I've left out gravity. So of course the standard model doesn't describe gravity either, and that's another huge issue. And of course I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the Higgs boson. Yep. This one's quite different to the other particles, but the explanation that most people are familiar with is that the Higgs is the reason that the matter and antimatter particles have a mass. And that's something that they get from interacting with what's called the Higgs field. So that sort of brings me to the non-particle side of the standard model. I think a lot of people, when they explain the standard model, prefer to talk about just the particles. But the standard model is a lot more than just the particles involved. It's also the way in which those particles interact. So it turns out that particles can be thought of as fields, which is sort of like a 3D wave. And just like in quantum mechanics, we have a wave-particle duality that's been observed. You know, photons, for example, can act as a particle or they can act as a wave. Yeah. Um, once we move to relativistic or very, very fast scales, we have sort of analogous thing called the field-particle duality, where particles are acting both as a particle, a discrete thing, quanta, and they're also acting as a field, that 3D wave I talked about. So that's why when we talk about the Higgs as a particle, we talk about it as a particle, but we also talk about its effect on other particles by saying those particles are interacting with the Higgs field, right? Yep. So it's become increasingly clear here that the standard model is not a complete picture of our universe. It's really close, 
but it's not it's not fully complete. And the standard model does have a beautiful elegance to it. It's described by a single equation called the standard model Lagrangian, from which all of physics can sort of fall out. But this equation also has some underlying symmetries hidden within it. And all this sort of mathematical elegance that we see in the standard model makes it a really enticing idea for physicists. The idea that something so beautiful and perfect and symmetric could fall out of all these, you know, miscellaneous, complex little bits that I've just gone over is a really appealing thought. Unfortunately, it leaves out some of these exotic phenomena like neutrino mass or gravity or, as I'll be talking about today, my favorite puzzle, dark matter. Yep. That is awesome. Particle Physics 101, and my ears pricked up also when you mentioned neutrinos. I remember a few years ago there was a huge furor when a team thought they'd proven that neutrinos were travelling faster than the speed of light. <laughs> now, let's look generally at your research area first. Dark matter is one of the holy grails of physics, and so far we know it's there. We know its effects, but not what it actually is. The Lux experiment bombed out. Nothing yet from the depths of that goldmine experiment that we looked at with Dr. Barberio back in episode 31. So can you outline for us, please, Kate, the various techniques currently being used by scientists to nail down dark matter, please? Yeah, so from a particle physics perspective, there's really two main categories of dark matter experiments that are being used. There's one of them is called direct detection and the other one's called indirect detection. So the underground experiment in Stahl, Victoria, the one that's being worked on by Dr. Elisabetta Barbario, is an example of a direct detection experiment. And basically in a direct detection experiment, the dark matter itself comes in and hits the detector. In the case of this experiment, it's some sodium iodide crystals. It'll actually hit those crystals and it will interact directly with those crystals and it'll cause those crystals to glow or the more scientific word is scintillate. Yep. And that experiment's in its early stages. They're actually still building the lab, but it's a really exciting experiment in any case. Alternatively, though, we actually have dark matter experiments that can happen at particle accelerators using indirect detection. So indirect detection is where we employ concepts like conservation of energy and conservation of momentum to search for something that is invisible or something that's missing in our collisions. The basic idea here is that if we successfully produced dark matter at a particle accelerator experiment, we can measure very well how much stuff is going into the collision. And we can measure all the stuff that comes out of the collision using our detector. But if we find that the stuff going in isn't equal to the stuff going out, then we know that there's something missing, right? There must be something invisible being created, something that's avoiding detection, or in other words, something dark, right? Dark yep. matter. Yep. But what's more is that we can actually determine specific properties like mass of the invisible stuff by using our conservation of momentum and conservation of energy techniques. And Conservation of momentum and energy are both very well understood by scientists. So this is a really appealing approach. Yep. So let's get specific now and talk about your research at Super Kick B. 
What are you doing there? Do you travel up to Japan or do you access your data remotely? And we can put our propeller hats on a bit more now if you thought we had them on for the standard model. Let's dig a bit deeper. And we'll challenge our audience to come to grips with the nuances of your research. What is the Bell 2 detector and how's your research going and what exactly are you doing and what type of dark matter are you looking for? Right, so I have traveled to Japan to do some control room shifts, which is very exciting. It's very exciting to be there and actually see the detector. But I do access my data remotely. In fact, even when I'm in Japan, I'm on my laptop accessing it over the internet, <laughs> even if I'm in the room, which is very interesting. Super Keck B is an electron-positron collider. So just like I talked about before, the electron and the anti-electron. What we do is we speed them up using magnets and they go in opposite directions around the beam pipe. We yep. speed them up to very close to the speed of light and then we smash them together. And the place where we smash them together is called the interaction point. And all around the interaction point, we have the Bell 2 detector. Yep. Now, it turns out that even though we say the Bell 2 detector as if it's a single detector, particle detectors are like onions. They actually have different layers, and each layer of the detector has a very specific different job to do. So while one layer of the detector might tell us the direction that particles are going, another layer might tell us the energy of that particle, whereas another layer might tell us where that particle came from. And then there's this other very important section that is the particle identification part. In particle identification, we have to tell the difference between particles that are typically very similar. So a good example of this is electrons and muons, the, the heavier version of the electron. Turns out when these pass through the detector, they look really similar. And so in order to distinguish those, we, we utilize a specific layer of the detector to do particle identification. And when we have these collisions, we have heaps of data coming out. In fact, you know, with CERN, back in the late 80s, early 90s, they were struggling with the amount of data that they were getting out. And so this is part of the reason why the World Wide Web exists. Yeah. Sort of before that, each country had its own internet, but CERN needed a way to immediately, the moment it took data, send it to different universities all over the world for storage because there was no way to store all of that information in one spot. So we do something similar. We pretty much take the data and it gets sent all over the world right when it's taken. But the real job of a particle physicist here is to sift through all of the data that we get that comes out and find the really interesting processes for whatever analysis we're doing. So in my case, that analysis is dark matter. <laughs> and so I have to sift through all of this data, most of which has nothing to do with dark matter. And, and I have to pull out the events that seem like they are interesting enough to be involved in dark matter. So the process that I'm looking at in my research, for example, is where we've got the electron and the positron coming in, smashing together. And we've got a photon coming out, that visible matter particle, but we also have a dark photon coming out. And the dark photon ends up, you know, either decaying into visible or dark matter particles and hitting the detector. 
So that's sort of the research that I'm working on specifically. That is awesome. That's fantastic. So exciting. Needle in a haystack. You mentioned the dark photon there. Is that anything like the usual photon that we know about from the standard model and, say, optical astronomy? Right. So mathematically, it's really, really similar to the standard model photon, which is how it got its name, the dark photon, although the dark photon is a bit of a misleading name. So the dark photon was proposed by this guy named Bob Holdham back in 1986. So it's really well established theoretically. Yep. And the dark photon is appealing because like the standard model photon, it's the simplest type of force carrying particle that exists or that we could construct mathematically. So I guess an approach to dark matter is if dark matter interacts with itself and with visible matter, we need to find what we call a portal to the dark sector. That is, we need to find that particle that allows interactions with both dark matter and with visible matter. So the dark photon is such a candidate. And so the dark photon undergoes a process called kinetic mixing with the standard model photon. And that essentially means that it can replace the standard model photon in electromagnetic interactions, which are really, really well understood. So it's a good place to start to look for dark matter. And kinetic mixing implies that there's some sort of small probability, as small as 10 to the minus four, very, very tiny probability, that the standard model photon is going to be replaced by the dark photon in those interactions. But there's a caveat here as well. The, the mixing requires the dark photon to have some finite non-zero mass. So unlike the standard model photon, which we know is massless, the dark photon has to have a non-zero mass. Cool. And in fact, if the mass of the dark photon were to be zero, then the probability of the dark photon replacing the standard model photon also becomes zero. And so... Once that probability of the dark photon replacing the standard model photon in electromagnetic interactions becomes zero, it doesn't necessarily mean that the dark photon doesn't exist. But what it does mean is that it's not interacting with visible matter, which makes it a lot less interesting to us because it means it can't serve as that portal that I was talking about between visible and dark matter. Fantastic. So what are the implications of finding dark matter, Kate, and Moreover, how do we know if you've actually found it? How can you be certain the stuff you see actually corresponds to a dark matter signal? Right. So, I mean, the truth is that we have no idea what finding dark matter would mean for us, aside from the obvious fact that, you know, if there was a clear sign that dark matter had been found, then that, then the people responsible would, of course, get a Nobel Prize. Yep. <laughs> but aside from that, we <laughs> aside from that, we have no idea what dark matter would do for us. I mean, you know, way back in the day when Marie Curie was doing research on X-rays and radiation, we had no idea what that was going to be used for either. It was only you know years and years past her death where we found out that it has these medical applications. And so I think it's really important to note that science precedes industry. Something has to be fundamentally understood 
how it works, what it is, that all has to be understood before we can engineer something out of it, which is definitely true in, I think, all areas that I can think of at the moment. But how do we know if we've actually found it? Well, in particle physics, we use this thing called statistical significance. And so a good analogy for what statistical significance is, is suppose we have a dice, you know, a dice with six sides, and we roll the dice and we roll a three, okay? Well, we had a one in six chance of rolling a three. That, that makes sense, right? Yep. But what happens if we roll the dice six times? How many threes do we expect to get? Well, again, we're rolling it six times and one in six chance. So we'd expect to roll a three one time, maybe give or take a little bit. You know, you might roll two threes. You might roll three threes. It'd be a little weird if you did, but, you know, nothing crazy. Yep. But what happens if we roll the dice six times and every single time that we roll it, we roll a three? Wow. That's a bit significant, right? Something's going on. This, this die is clearly loaded. So... In particle physics, this is really important because quantum mechanics is all about probability and chance. So what we need is we need a huge number of events or a huge number of rolls of the dice in order to be sure that what we're seeing is actually there. And on top of that, we need something that's really anomalous. Like, you know, we need something like rolling the dice and every single time it's a three in order to be sure that it's not just an accident that we've found this. So that's the idea of statistical significance, the idea that what we're finding is not an accident. And this is sort of why it's really promising to look for dark matter at Bell 2, because Bell 2 is on what's called the luminosity frontier in yep. particle physics. And there's sort of two different frontiers that are talked about in particle physics. There's the luminosity frontier and the energy frontier. Yep. The energy frontier is what they're doing at the Large Hadron Collider. They've, you know, they're smashing things together at tera electron volts, which is a very, very high unit of measurement to be smashing particles together, which means that the stuff they get out can be really, really massive because energy and mass are the same thing, right. right? Yep. But the luminosity frontier on the flip side is where we take a lot of data. Luminosity is essentially code for like the amount of data we have. So if something is very luminous, then it collects a lot of data. And data can be thought about as the number of times you roll the dice, right? Yep. So if we collect a lot of it, we've rolled the dice a lot of times, the chance of us finding something that we already know is a very rare process, which dark matter interacts very, very rarely, the chance of us finding something that interacts super rarely goes way up when we roll the dice, you know, millions and millions and millions of times. Say our dice is loaded and it's loaded in favor of the standard model particles. And if we roll that dice, you know, 10, 20, 100, 2000 times, we might still not see things that are not standard model particles. We might not see dark matter. Yep. But if we roll that dice, you know, a billion times, there's a chance that we would have one or two little dark matter events in there. And so that's kind of why Bell 2 is, is super exciting for these dark matter searches. That is fantastic. And I love the excitement in your voice and the way you use <laughs> words. You use words like beauty and beautiful and elegance to describe your research. That's fantastic. We are going to crack dark matter thanks to researchers like you, Kate. Now, 
The mic is all yours and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about one of the challenges we face in science or science denialism or science career paths or in your case, your passion for equity and diversity or perhaps our quest for new knowledge or even science outreach. The microphone's all yours, Kate. Right. Let's see. There, there are so many different things that I'm, I'm excited about, <laughs> but I think one that I'm really passionate about and I think it doesn't get talked about enough in particle physics or really in academia is mental health in academia. It's sort of a taboo subject, but it's important that it gets discussed and it's important, it's important that like it's shed on it. You know, there are higher chances of things like anxiety and depression in academia. And part of that comes from just the sheer workload involved in academia. I myself have suffered from mental health problems in the past, um, some of which have stemmed from my childhood, but some of which, you know, definitely, definitely doing my PhD has not helped those things, you know. And so I think it's really important that students and career academics, people who are older and well into their career, also feel like they're supported with their mental health struggles. And to have a sort of environment in physics or in academia in general that is understanding of the needs of people who are struggling with depression or anxiety or anything like that. I think it's, it's an issue that gets swept under the rug a lot, but it's slowly coming up to the surface. And yeah, I think it's, it's not talked about as much as it needs to be. Yes. The more we talk about it, the better. And then we can start addressing some of those inherent structural issues that cause mental health problems in young people as they come to grips with the structure of academias but that's a whole topic for another podcast oh, I think. yeah you, yeah you could talk about this for days indeed look at this stage is there anything else that we should watch out for in the near future in particle physics what are you keeping your eye on well you know we mentioned this a bit earlier in the interview but um, i'm definitely keeping my eye on supple which is that underground physics lab being set up in Stahl, victoria um it's the southern hemisphere version of an experiment called saber which is based out of italy and it's currently being built but I think that the the results that come out of that are going to be very exciting, whether they agree with the currently found results from the Northern Hemisphere or whether they disagree with them. In, in either case, the results are going to be very exciting and there's going to be a lot of implications from those results. The other sort of thing that I'm keeping my eye on is some upcoming measurements of what we call RK and RK star and RD and RD star in particle physics. These measurements will tell us a lot about the matter-antimatter asymmetry in the universe that I talked about earlier. And hopefully coming out of Bell 2 as we collect more data, some of that mystery will start to unfold for us. So that's very exciting as well. Sensational. So we'll keep our eye on that as well, Kate. Well, thank you so much, almost Dr. Kate McQueen. On behalf <laughs> of our listeners, it's been really fabulous speaking with you and hearing about elegance and beauty and particle physics. Thank you especially for your time and your busy schedule. 
and we'll encourage all listeners to follow Kate on Twitter as well. She does fabulous posts as at CMQ Centaurus sets at CMQ C-E-N-T-A-U-R-U-S. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Brendan. This was absolutely lovely. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Kate. Bye now. Thank you. Bye. And now we cross to Adelaide to catch up with Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. Great to be speaking with you again. Can you tell us, Ian, what's up in the sky for the next two weeks? What's up in the sky for the next two weeks? As this broadcast goes out, you will have missed the occupation of Saturn, which was only visible from uh, the North Island, New Zealand, Polynesia and the East Coast of Australia anyway. Uh, now the moon will be moving out of the evening sky into the morning sky, which means you have a very nice evening sky if you've got a nice dark sky sight. Also, we'll have the trailing end of the Perseids. The Perseids run up until the 24th of August. Now, unfortunately, this is a bad year for Perseids. With the moon interfering for most of the Perseids, and by the time this podcast goes out, the Perseids will be at their trailing end. Now, in Australia, uh, the Perseids are absolute rubbish, and the only people who get a decent view of the Perseids, or any view of the Perseids, is the uh, is in uh, Darwin and and Cairns and places like that, which have a a, uh, a fairly good northern exposure in the sense that the radius becomes almost high above Darwin and Cairns and places with similar latitude. Uh, anywhere south of there, won't have very much to see. In the northern hemisphere, the Perseids are a excellent meteor shower, which has quite a few meteors. But again, this year, the, moon, the uh, almost full moon is very close to the, the Perseid radiant and will uh, greatly interfere with seeing meteors. Nonetheless, if you want to have a go uh, and you're in the Northern Hemisphere and want to go out on the nights of the 22nd, 23rd and 24th, go and have a look. But of course, the rates fall off very rapidly from the peak. But... It's going to be a beautiful sky, so why not go and have a look? Excellent. Yeah. Now, let's go back to our stalwarts. Of the bright planets, the only ones that we can see are, at the moment are Jupiter and Saturn in the evening sky. They're very well placed. Uh, Jupiter is at the highest above the northern uh, horizon, uh, for us in the southern hemisphere, and southern horizon for the, those of you in the northern hemisphere around about 7.30 at night. So that will be at its highest, and it'll be best for telescopic observation. Jupiter is very obvious. It's the brightest object aside from the sun and the moon uh, in the sky at the moment, uh, and it's uh, below the very distinctive curl of Scorpius, and not far from the uh, bright red star Antares that forms the centre of the body of Scorpion. So Jupiter's very easy to see. It's a very beautiful territory. I went out tonight about 10 minutes ago, Ian, and I looked straight up and Jupiter, the Moon and Saturn were in a straight line and virtually overhead and looked magnificent. Oh, yeah. 
So, as you said, not far from um, from Jupiter is Saturn. Saturn is uh, just below the handle of the cosmic teapot that is Sagittarius. Uh, it's almost directly above the heart of the Milky Way. Saturn is its highest around about 9.30 of the evening, so that will be best for telescopic observation, and it doesn't set until um, around about 5 o'clock in the morning, so you've got lots of night to follow uh, Saturn. Similarly, uh, Jupiter doesn't set until 2.30 in the morning, so you've got a fairly good uh, amount of time to have a good look at Jupiter uh, before it gets too low above the horizon or telescopic viewing if you're a telescope fan or unaided eye viewing if you just like seeing Jupiter in its native habitat, so to speak. In terms of planets, that's, that's basically all that's happening at the moment. Of course, as uh, this podcast will go out on the 15th, and from that time on, the moon will be now rising in the morning, and this is a perfect time to observe the Milky Way. Now, for us in the Southern Hemisphere, the Milky Way at uh, astronomical twilight, the time when uh, the sky is now absolutely dark, an hour and a half after sunset, it's reaching straight across the zenith. It's an absolutely magnificent view, as you saw yourself last night. Um, so uh, you'll have Scorpius, you'll have Sagittarius stretched across the zenith. Towards the south, you will have the uh, Southern Cross uh, and the pointers for us in the Southern Hemisphere. Sadly, some of the more amazing clusters will sink out of view that are in the uh, south of the Southern Cross. Vila and Greener will be too low to the right with views, but possibly one of the best globular clusters in the night sky at all over this flight. Is in a beautiful position at the moment, so it's not uh, it's not too uh, far away from the pointers. You'll have a good view in the early evening. See this beauty. Yeah. If you take a line between uh, Beta Centauri and Beta Crucis, the two of the brightest, the second brightest star in the pointers, or the second brightest star in the uh, Southern Cross. If you draw a line between them, and then a, a a perpendicular line between that line going straight up. You, uh, you run a pair of binoculars across that, you'll end up with a globular cluster over this fly. And that will be something really magnificent to see. Even in binoculars, it's an obvious uh, glowing ball of cotton wool, which is uh, really quite nice. Excellent. Thanks, Ian. So there's plenty to see. The next globe at night sky pollution campaign starts on August the 22nd, just about when we're due for the, the next of these podcasts. On August the 22nd, uh, the next uh, campaign starts off, going to the 31st. That is an excellent time to contribute to our database of uh, light pollution around the world. Ah, very good. Mm-hmm. I'm, under, I'm under theoretically... Bottle two skies here, so I've got lovely dark skies where I live. Ah, uh, envy, envy, envy. <laughs> I haven't um, uh, checked my, the water rating on of my sky. It's not fantastic, but I can, on uh, good nights I can see down to magnitude 5.5. Still, still, not bad for a suburban sky, but nothing compared to a bottle two. Very good. Now, do you have a tangent for us for this fortnight, Ian? Yes, I, I do have a tangent for us. 
Uh, if you've been uh, listening or watching uh, Twitter recently, there's been a rather interesting discussion about what would happen if you shot Mars into Jupiter. And someone even went to the point of view of using the Universe Sandbox to acquire Mars into Jupiter and look, uh, look what happens to it. Which is all very interesting from a theoretical point of view. It makes a huge scar bigger than the uh, scars left by the Shoemaker-Levy comets when they crashed into Jupiter. But after a while, it, it goes away, at least in that simulation, and nothing very much happens to Jupiter itself. But reality uh, uh, caught up with us uh, a few days ago when a meteor uh, comet uh, crashed into Jupiter again. Yes, I saw that. Yeah, now, this has been a, a semi-regular occurrence been, uh, that we've been noticing since the Shoemaker-Levy impact. Uh, those of you who uh, don't remember, uh, the Shoemaker-Levy impact was when the comet Shoemaker-Levy uh, broke up and uh, then the uh, a train of comets rained down on the surface of Jupiter, resulting in uh, Bibles that were seen from Earth and then long-lasting scars that occurred in uh, its atmosphere, and that was quite amazing. We think the Jupiter Shoemaker-Levy original comet was about about a, a, about one to two kilometres in diameter and left very impressive scars. Then uh, in 2009, there was another uh, impact which left a large uh, scar on Jupiter's atmosphere, again large, large and dark. Uh, that was caught by an Australian um, amateur astronomer, Anthony Wesley. Yep. Then there, was, then there was another in 2010, followed by another in August 2010, one in 2016, and one in 2017. And this latest event in 2019 was caught during uh, infrared uh, videoing of uh, Jupiter's atmosphere, and it was a quite clear impact. Fantastic. Yeah. And uh, having mentioned uh, Anthony Wesley and the uh, red, Great Red Spot, um, I mentioned in our last talk that the Great Red Spot doesn't seem to be vanishing after all, despite uh, some uh, fear that it would. But what's been happening in the latest images that we've seen is that it's, it's, um, it's consolidating and becoming darker and redder. So instead of sort of peeling off and vanishing away, the core seems to be becoming more intense and, and a, a darker colour. In recent years, uh, the uh, Great Red Spot has become uh, much paler. But after this um, uh, windmilling event uh, that has been thoroughly documented by uh, the Australian amateur Anthony Whitley, we've been seeing this consolidation and darkening of the Great Red Spot. So it doesn't look like it's vanishing anytime soon. But it is, it is changing from uh, the view we've been used to it. So Jupiter, uh, as I said, is in an excellent position for viewing. Uh, and amateur astronomers can, uh, can greatly contribute to our understanding of Jupiter by being able to observe these changes over a great period of time, which professionals won't necessarily have the ability to do, or even spacecraft. Fantastic. So a big shout out to amateurs and more proof that a week is a long time in astronomy. A week is a very long time in astronomy. <laughs> for a heavens that apparently don't seem to change much from uh, day to day, 
amazing things can happen in such a short period of time. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much again, Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave. And thank you very much, Brendan, for having me on and helping people to navigate the night sky. Excellent. Bye now. Goodbye. Here is the Astrophys News for episode 88. Remember we said earlier a week is a long time in astronomy. Well, here's proof of that. We've been following the FRB mystery for a few years now, and for new listeners, fast radio bursts, or FRBs, are huge millisecond bursts of energy from beyond our galaxy. And this latest report is assembled from a Nature article two days ago and a 9th of August archive preprint from Anderson et al., available at tinyurlcom forward slash FRB repeaters, or lowercase all one word. Astronomers closer to cracking mystery of fast radio bursts. The Canadian Chime Radio Telescope finds another eight repeating blasts. The cause of FRBs has remained a mystery since the first FRB was identified in 2007. Astronomers hope that studying bursts that repeat their flashes rather than just flare once can help to elucidate the origins of FRBs. That's because it's easier for high-resolution telescopes to make follow-up observations of repeaters and trace their origins than of one-off blasts. Why ultra-powerful radio bursts are the most perplexing mystery in astronomy? Of the roughly 75 FRBs seen before this month's discoveries, just three bursts were known to be repeaters. The first of these has been extensively studied. The Canadian Hydrogen Intensity Mapping Experiment, CHIME Telescope, discovered the second repeater earlier this year, and the third repeater came from the Russian Pushino Observatory. Now, CHIME's latest results show that repeaters are far from rare. Also, just quietly, ASCAP, the Australian Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder, also found a new repeater, bringing the total so far to 12, although researchers are yet to publish this result. Chime began hunting for FRBs in 2018 and has also discovered hundreds of one-off FRBs. Chime researcher Brian Gangsler said on Twitter, In 25 years of astronomy research, this is unquestionably the most exciting project I've ever worked on. These findings mean that there are now enough repeaters to start comparing these with one-off blasts. The eight chime repeaters seem to be located within a similar range of distances to the one-off bursts, but repeater signals lasted longer on average, the collaboration reports. If this trend holds, it could be a sign that two separate phenomena cause the different kinds of blast, because the duration of a blast reflects the underlying mechanism that produces it. Many, though not all of the latest haul, also share a feature of the first two repeaters. Rather than being a simple blast with a narrow frequency, the signals descend in frequency in a way that the team compares to a sad trombone sound, and explaining them poses a challenge to theorists. So there you go. I bet you never thought astrophysicists would ever publish the phrase sad trombone. Also this week from Swinburne University of Technology in Australia, 
More exciting FRB news. Swinburne uses AI to detect fast radio bursts in real time. A Swinburne PhD student has built an automated system that uses artificial intelligence to capture fast radio bursts in real time from the Malonglo Observatory Synthesis Telescope. PhD student Whale Farrar is the first to discover FRBs in real time with a fully automated machine learning system. Five bursts were captured using the machine learning system and published in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. Australian Research Council Laureate Fellow and Project Leader who we interviewed back in episode 56, Professor Matthew Bales, said, Malonglo's real-time detection system allows us to fully exploit its high time and frequency resolution and probe FRB properties that were previously unobtainable. What this means is that with real-time detection and breakthroughs in localization, it should be possible for other instruments to quickly examine FRB environments. The mystery of FRB mechanisms is unraveling as we speak. Watch this space. Finally, we have a great explanation from Asteroid Hunter and our friend and mathematician Daniel Bamberger on why couldn't we use a network of radar-equipped satellites to monitor asteroid threats? You can find that at tinyearl.com forward slash no radar, all lowercase, all one word. Have a read. It's fabulous. We'll see you in two weeks. Radio Wave!